Good morning. If you would, get a Bible. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1. We'll be reading from that place to begin in just a moment. Genesis chapter 1. Good to see you this morning. We have visitors. Thank you for being here. I want you to feel welcome. And anything we can do to help you draw closer to God or to encourage you, we want to do that. So please let us know about that. But we're thankful that you're here. It's good to see you and be with you this morning. I want to begin by reading in Genesis 1 and verse 9. Genesis 1 and verse 9. The text says, And God said... Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. I want to spend a few minutes this morning telling you why I believe God exists. And that is a hard topic, because the Bible doesn't really help us in that discussion. Or at least, it's not the last word. It's a hard topic, not because there aren't good reasons to claim that God exists, but because we can easily get locked into kind of a circular argument where we say something like this, how do you know God exists? And we say, well, the Bible says so. Well, how do you know that the Bible is true? Well, God wrote it. And so suddenly we're in a circle, aren't we? And to those who are not believers in the fact that the Bible is from God or that God exists, they're kind of left outside the circle. And so it seems to me that it would be important for us to be able to communicate about maybe some reasons or some thoughts as to why we would come to faith in the existence of God outside of just or perhaps only supported by things that are taught in Scripture. But the Bible is kind of an interesting document because the Bible assumes God's existence. It purports to be from God. And of course, if you were writing something, you probably wouldn't spend a lot of time in what you were writing, trying to prove to people that you are real. Okay, that's just not the way we write things, and it's obviously not the way God writes things. So, proving the existence of God is is kind of challenging just going on biblical texts alone. The other part of this that's kind of difficult is the fact that faith like this is by definition personal. So each one of us is going to have faith in God for different reasons. Different things resonate. You know, that happens in the New Testament too. For example, Nathaniel has faith in God that comes from, or faith in Jesus that comes from a different source than Thomas. It's not that they heard a different gospel, it is that different things about that gospel appeal to them in different ways. So, what I propose is that I'm just going to tell you and go through the reasons why I believe God exists. And the I there is Jacob. And I'm going to tell you why I believe that. Some of those things, you might say, well, that's not really convincing to me. Or you might say, you know what, I really wish you had talked about these other things that were things that are the reasons why you believe God exists, but these are the things that resonate with me. Now, you might ask before we jump into this, why would we talk about this? I think, first of all, we need to remember that there are some people who do not approach God the same way we do or approach the topic of God. Perhaps they have come to believe that there is no God for scientific reasons, perhaps for moral reasons or personal reasons, or perhaps they have never been convinced that there is a God. And so if they were to come into our assembly or they are to watch our lessons online or something like that, they would be kind of left out in the cold. We would start with the assumption that God exists, which is an assumption that they don't share. And so it seems to me that there is a time and a place for us to say, let's just address that for those who are not in the believing category. But the second reason is that I believe it is always appropriate for us to examine the logical basis for our faith. Because... Either we are going to find that our faith is not on as strong ground as we thought, 
or we are going to be reaffirmed in the strength of what we believe. One way or the other, the result is going to be further study and attention is going to help us draw closer to the truth. And that's our goal this morning. So why I believe God exists. First of all, I believe God exists because he is the best explanation for several things that we observe and are familiar with in human experience and in the natural world. First of all, I believe God is the best explanation for order in the natural world. There is tremendous order in the world that we live in. There is order in living things. The field of biology is the study of the order of life. And those classifications, the organisms can be organized into different classifications according to joint traits that we share or that different kinds of animals and classes and families and orders of, of animals share. But that's just life. You can look at the solar system, which accounts for our climate and our seasons, the orbits, and then the, the vastness of the world that we live in and the universe that we inhabit, but that we thrive and life thrives in order, as we observe here in our solar system and on our planet, or if you want to get really small, there is order at the molecular level, tremendous order that comprises everything that exists, comprises life. And if you study chemistry, and especially very uh, microchemistry, very small things, you'll find tremendous order in how that chemistry works. And that order allows for the study of other things, like physics, or like anatomy, or like geology. In fact, it seems to me that we have forgotten, as a nation, as a society, in Western culture, that science began as people who were of the Christian faith wanted to unravel the mysteries God had put into the universe. Have you ever thought about I don't think that this thought goes on very often. Science itself rests on the assumption that things are always going to work the same way. That gravity will always work the same way. That conditions being the same, we will get the same result when we perform experiment after experiment. And that if you keep trying long enough and you isolate variables, you can get at the truth, the scientific truth. And that those disciplines originated with Christians who were trying to unravel the mysteries God had put in how the world worked. For example, the famous astronomer Kepler said... I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. Which, by the way, is a great quote. That in studying the universe, he was thinking what God had already thought. So that's still what science does, by the way. It tries to unravel the laws and the mechanisms by which the world works. It's just that we've kind of left out the God part now. And we say, no, that's not what God put in. That's just what the, the world itself is. Now, that may seem like a moot point to you. But I want to say, that's an important thing because it undergirds all scientific inquiry. If the universe and life itself is the result of an undirected process, it just happened, why would we expect that everything would always work the same way? Why would we expect that chemical reactions will always happen the same way? Why would we test things and get the same result every time if everything is simply random? See, there is order in the natural world, and all of science hinges on that order. And the rules that we find most important for scientific study, like the constants and the forces, are all based on laws that are certain and that life on Earth depends on. So, 
answering the question of whether God exists is going to hinge on how do we explain the order in the natural world that, that all of us acknowledge. Just how did we get it? How do we get to where we are? So those who don't believe in God usually attribute this order to what I'm going to call an undirected process. The idea that there's no intelligence behind it. There's no God out there. It's just the natural elements slowly over time combining in certain ways and producing this. So gases coalesced and condensed and exploded and created the universe. The universe emerged from that Big Bang, forming planets which slowly came under the orbits of one another and of nearby stars. Just so happens that Earth is a planet that came under the orbit of the sun. And over time, certain chemicals combined with other chemicals and with certain impulses and different things going on, suddenly there were one-celled organisms that were formed and began to reproduce. And then enough one-celled organisms, slowly life stacks up on itself as these organisms combine and reproduce. And if you add enough years and enough different variables, then eventually you get to complex life forms. Life forms that, that want to form civilizations and have a consciousness and have speech. So what begins with, with basically just gases then becomes what we know now. And this perspective explains order by looking backwards. And these folks would say the way we got order is that that's just what natural selection produces. It produces order. And to some extent, that's true. You know, you can study the variations and adaptations of certain organisms and say, well, I, I can understand where that came from. I can see how that was necessary looking backward, and I can explain some of the order that I see. But there is more order than can be simply explained by natural processes. So the logic generally goes, and if you read scientists that, that talk about the, the broad view of an undirected, a naturalistic evolution... What they will say is, there is the illusion of design. It looks designed, but it's really not. That's just what natural selection produces. And I think there's a tremendous admission in the idea that there is an illusion of design, that it looks like it. Just don't be fooled by that illusion, they would say. I find the claim that all this order emerged without any intervention from any intelligence, all by itself from chaos, I find that argument unconvincing. To me, the best explanation for order in the natural world is a God who ordered it. So in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9, Genesis 1 and verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So when God creates, you particularly see this in the Genesis account, God creates and he creates domains, and then he populates the domains. And he, he does separation. You see that there in verse 10. He separates the uh, waters from the land and the dry land and the waters so that there are different spheres. He makes order. In verse 12, it says, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit in, their, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Notice that 
things reproducing after their kinds, that kind of order is inherent in the universe. That everything produces after its kind, whether it be a a plant or whether it be an animal, that's the way God made the world to work. And I believe that's the explanation for what we take for granted as the order of reproduction and the continuation of life. We don't even think about that. Why is it that way? But I believe God is the best explanation for it. In fact, uh, David says this in Psalm 19 and verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. He says, I look up, and I find cause to glorify God. I suspect David is out maybe on one of his night watches as he's uh, waiting for God to give him the kingdom. And he looks up and he says, wow, every night I get to look up at the sky and I just learn more about God. He finds cause to glorify God because of stars, because of days and nights, because of the regularity of it. It just seems to me that the deeper we delve into why things are the way they are, the more we need an explanation. Why is it this way? Not just what is it, which is what science does. Science tells us, oh, here is everything and and what it looks like and what's going on as we look at the stars. But the why of it demands an explanation better than just because. Now, we could say more about this. In fact, the Bible adds other things. But we're we're kind of just building on that foundation that God is responsible for the order we see. I want to say, though, that does not mean that disorder in the world disproves God. In fact, Scripture talks about disorder in the world, and it attributes disorder to sin. And that is a a variable that we need to introduce. I'm not talking really about that everything in the world is perfect, and that proves there's a God. I am saying there is an order that is so widespread and so fundamental to life that it demands an explanation. I believe that God is the best explanation for that. Second, I believe God exists because he's the best explanation for morality. One of the unique features of humanity compared to, say, cows is that humans believe the things that they do are right and wrong, that there is a moral dimension to what we do. I don't believe that's a feature of cows. Cows are not particularly moral or immoral. They just are. In fact, you can say that about all other living creatures on earth, is that there is no sense of should in their behavior. So that raises a question. Why do we feel that things are bad? Where would that come from? And there is an aversion that is a part of human behavior. It is both intellectual and visceral, emotional. That is, we could sit here and talk about, what do you think about murder? Is murder good or bad? And we could have that discussion, and most of us would would come down on the side that murder is a bad thing. But to see someone murdered would produce a tremendous visceral reaction in us. Why would that be? Isn't that a part of nature? Doesn't that happen all over the animal kingdom every day? Why would it be that we classify that as evil, something to be punished, something unjust? So I'm not really talking here just about what's in the Bible, even outside of the Bible, to people who haven't read the Bible or don't believe the Bible. You can go pretty much in any culture and you will get a list of things something like this. It's wrong to steal what belongs to someone else. It is wrong to be unfaithful to your commitment to a person. It is wrong to lie. 
it is wrong to kill. So, where does that come from? Why would we think things are wrong? What is that even an appeal to, right and wrong? Well, those who don't believe in God argue that right and wrong morality is a relic of social evolution. That is to say, the thesis here is that when humans were first becoming civilized, there were certain things that would help the group survive and certain things that would be a a detraction from the group, that the community would be stronger if we did certain things or if we allowed and punished certain things. So that's the origin of morality, they would say. So it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good for the group, for people to go around stealing other people's stuff. Everybody get mad at each other. We might kill each other. So we just decided theft is wrong, and we try to discourage theft. And the same goes for, you know, stealing someone else's wife. Same goes for killing. You know, it would just cause this anarchy in the group. So for the group to have cohesion, we needed some rules about what was right and wrong. And so over time, you know, those just kind of got ingrained into the human psyche. That's just become what we really think is right and wrong. But, but really, the, these are just the, the relics of what we needed back then. And really, they're good for society when you don't do all these bad things to each other. They help society progress. So it's probably good for us to keep promoting that kind of morality. So they set aside the fact that many of these things are actually evolutionarily beneficial. You know that there are things that we think that are wrong that would really be good if we're strictly animals, like rape. That would be a positive because there is the more possibility for reproduction. Like genocide, that would be a positive because we are eliminating other contenders for food sources. Like euthanasia, that would be a positive because we're getting rid of people who are not contributing as much to the group and instead we're freeing up more resources for others. If we're going to think that there is nothing right or wrong except what benefits the group, we have to consider, well, does that really explain why we feel this way? It also doesn't answer the question as to why other animals, if man is only an animal, why other animals don't share that sense of morality. They don't share the sense that there are things that should not be done, even though they have established social communities too. So I just don't find that explanation for morality convincing. I believe that God is the best explanation for morality. I believe that morality is a reflection of how humanity tries to mirror the nature of God. The nature of God being that he wants his people to be free, he wants his people to be loving, and that there are certain things that will not contribute to us reflecting that nature that need to be avoided. I believe that God is the best explanation of the fact that like the natural world, God has made life to work best within boundaries, moral boundaries as well as relational boundaries. I believe that God is the best explanation of the fact that there is a standard by which we feel we need to measure ourselves about not only whether what we did was successful, but whether what we did is right. Let's go to Genesis chapter 20. I want to show you this here. Genesis chapter 20. And I want to remind you that there is no evidence here that this man that we're going to read about named Abimelech is a believer in Jehovah God. Genesis 20 and verse 1. 
From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not, say, did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. I want you to notice Abimelech's reaction. He has been tricked by Abraham. But... He says in verse 4, will you kill an innocent people? Verse 5, didn't he say she is my sister? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. The, the key bit of information Abimelech was missing is that Sarah was Abraham's wife. And even though he doesn't seem to have any awareness of Jehovah God, this man knows it's wrong to take another man's wife. There is a moral dimension to the way he thinks about right and wrong, even in a situation where he doesn't have a knowledge of Jehovah God. So when I see that, when we see civilizations that don't have a clear definition of who God is and what God expects, still believing things are right and wrong, that demands an explanation. I believe it speaks to a dimension that is peculiar to humanity. This is not about the way things are, but about the way things should be. And I believe that that presence of morality demands an explanation. I believe God is the best explanation. All right, the third thing I would say about why I believe God exists is that he's the best explanation for the search for meaning. Why is it that humans continue to believe that there is a point? Why are we so stubborn about this? We search for meaning in everything. We search for meaning in conversations that we have. Okay, what, what does that mean? What could that lead to? We search for meaning in simple tasks and everyday events. Why is it that we think we matter? Why would that be? There is also this innate drive in man to discover what life is about, as if there's a purpose to everything. Have you noticed that? Everybody seems to talk about that. In fact, the famous old trope is, what is the meaning of life? Why would, it, why would we think that there would be a meaning? What would lead us down that path? Especially, that is strange when you consider the fact that if you limit yourself to earthly realities, there is no point. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes for a moment. That's exactly what Solomon says. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book to add to this discussion because in it, Solomon appears to be evaluating life without considering God. He wants to just look at what he can learn from observing life. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does God, man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. It sure sounds like he's having a bad day, doesn't it? It's all worthless. It's all vanity. Nothing has any point. And he finds that by looking at nature. Did you notice? It doesn't, nature doesn't go anywhere. Wind blows this way, blows back this way. Water falls, water goes, water falls. It's just monotonously cyclical over and over and over again. And what Solomon says is man's just like that. We're born, we grow up, we get old, we die. What's the point? We don't go anywhere, we don't do anything special, we're not progressing. In fact, he says, there's nothing new. Everything that we're doing has already been done. That is kind of depressing, isn't it? So why would we think that man would keep searching for some meaning? Solomon tries to find value in his life. He goes after wisdom. He goes after pleasure and fame. goes after women. goes after accomplishments. And what he finds, the message of Ecclesiastes is that none of those things help him escape death. You can't take any of them with you. None of them have any lasting value. So, when we limit ourselves to viewing the earthly, life is brutal and short and unfulfilling. So why would we think there's meaning here? What would teach us that? What would lead us to believe that? No other animals look at their lives and wonder... Why am I here? Am I fulfilling my purpose? Take a look at your dog sometime. And is my dog thinking, I don't really feel fulfilled here. There, There may be more to life than this. That's peculiarly human. And that demands an explanation. Why do we keep looking for meaning? Well, two paths of explanation, of course. Those who don't believe in God would attribute this search for meaning to social evolution. That is, again... People try to imbue their lives with meaning because when we have meaning, suddenly we're more productive. We do better. We fight harder if there's a battle. We work harder if there's a goal. And so they say, well, these are just relics of of past times when people have manipulated one another and tried to promote things, and finally people just started believing there must be a meaning, there must be a purpose. They are deluded in that. Of course, this view would say that there is no real meaning because without a director of life, without there being a God, there is no real meaning. All of us are meaningless. Our lives are meaningless. Society is meaningless. Progress is meaningless. There is no point. There is no goal. Even the idea that we should move in a certain direction, like toward, let's say, freedom and human rights, that's pointless too. Why? What's the goal? There is no point. So I find that explanation utterly unsatisfying. I believe God is the best explanation for the search for meaning. We matter because God made us in his image as opposed to the other creatures that he made. We matter because God gave us a reason to exist, a purpose to fulfill. 
We were made to carry God's image into the world. We were made to do the works God created us to do. Paul says in Acts 17, 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This, this that statement is a purpose statement. This is the purpose of what God has been doing in human history so that they should seek God. This is where we find meaning. This is the reason we search for meaning. We want to know why do our lives matter? And he says, it's simple. You were made to do something, and until you do it, you will feel unfulfilled. So the purpose is not found outside of God. The purpose is not found strictly in this life. And I believe that is the best explanation for this drive and search for meaning in man. And finally, I believe God exists because he's the best explanation for the yearnings of the human heart. Human existence has this strange tension. I want to lay it out before you this way. Just hear me out. We long for eternity, even though all we have ever known is death and finite time. We long for perfection, even though all we have ever seen is imperfection. We long for justice, even though all we have ever seen is partial justice. We long to worship, even though all we've ever seen are glimpses of God. We long for beauty, even though beauty is hard to hold on to and hard to find. We long for pleasure, even though it's passing. We long for love, even though it disappoints us and hurts us. Do you notice how many things we long for that we don't have? In fact, we've never had them. We've only had the glimpses and the moments and the pieces, and yet we search and we wait and we yearn. Ecclesiastes 1.8, did you notice this? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We're not satisfied. We don't have what we're seeking. We still yearn for it. There are holes in our hearts. Very often our mental health is directly related to how we're able to adjust to that tension of seeking and yearning for something and yet knowing we cannot have it. Sometimes sin, what the Bible defines as sin, is related to how we try to fill those holes in ways God doesn't intend for us to. These needs, that tension, sometimes is what drives us to succeed and accomplish in the work that we do in life. But how do we account for it? Why would we be wired this way? How do we make sense of the yearnings of the human heart? Well, those who don't believe in God would argue that these are merely mental constructs. They're our own imaginings about ideals. So, you know, it's good to have a goal. If you have a goal, you know something to strive for. So these are relics of old goals. And over time, the more people have stressed this idea, maybe let's say about pleasure and love, okay, that, that over time just becomes so ingrained into humanity that now it's a part of our hearts, even though we don't really consciously choose it. So we start yearning for things because that's the way we've been conditioned to think. And of course, this view would argue that these things really don't matter. They aren't that important. They could easily be replaced by other equally valid or invalid ideals. I find it unconvincing 
that these thoughts that are so ingrained in us and so tied to our happiness and so foreign to human life are the product of other people. That people did this to us. How is it that people could drive into us this sense of things that none of us have ever seen? That we yet yearn for. I believe God exists because I believe God is the best explanation for this. Turn a page to Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. It says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's a fascinating little phrase, isn't it? He's put eternity into man's heart. He is saying... There is a piece of what we see in God, how God is bigger and exists outside our small, finite frame of reference. And yet we, we feel it. He's put it in our heart. We understand it, yet it baffles us and mystifies us. I remember as a small child being told about eternity and just sitting in a church pew with my eyes glazed over trying to picture eternity. I mean, but, but yeah, but what happens when it's over? It's just not over. What? It just boggles the mind. Why, why would that thought get there? Nothing in our experience is eternal. And yet God has put eternity into our hearts. So it seems to me that in contemplating God, we see what the point is. God is why we strive toward eternity. Why we want to last longer than the years we have in this life. We want to keep living, don't we? Because God will give us eternal life. God is the reason we believe justice is appropriate. God is the reason we seek after love. So instead of wishing these yearnings away and saying that's unrealistic, you need to deal with life the way it is, God teaches us, no, this is yearning for real life and real pleasure and real love, what only he can satisfy. So all of these things... And especially, I want to emphasize to all of us the fleeting nature of them. You know the, those moments where, where your heart soars and you wish you could just capture it, but you know you won't remember it, you can't keep it. Don't see those merely as, as sad. See them as glimpses of the life God wants to give us. Glimpses of another life, the better life. They're echoes of something better. So, these are the main reasons why I believe God exists. I believe God is the best explanation for these four things. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't add something here. Don't worry, it's not another point. A large part of my faith is based on my own personal experience with God. And I don't believe, I'm not talking about visions and voices and that kind of thing. I mean that when I trusted God's word and just tried it, I found the tremendous power in it. And it confirmed that these things I had previously thought were true, and it confirmed the wisdom of God. There are some things that we can't be argued into. And so David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Sometimes we just have to, to try. I understand that some people may disagree with my reasons. Some people might just say, no, I can't believe that God exists. 
But I would like to ask just a few questions to anybody who might be listening to this or be present with us this morning who does not believe that God exists. And that is this. Isn't it at least possible? Possible that God answers these questions? Isn't it at least possible that God may even be a better explanation than some other? And particularly, the main impediment in our time to people believing in God is that people say, we can't believe in God if we cannot test him scientifically. We need proof. Does the fact that God will not subject himself to a scientific test mean that he is not real? Or, more precisely, might it be that there is a paradigm shift that may be in order here? That we begin to see things in an entirely different way? For example, a God who is truly who God claims he is may not want to be subjected to your scientific tests if he is indeed God. Sometimes it seems to me we can be so closed-minded about insistence on things like scientific proof that we can miss what's clear and right in front of us. But I'll also say this. Even if we dispose of the idea of God, we still have some very serious questions to answer. It doesn't make the questions go away. You still have to answer the question, where did all these things come from? How can I explain them? Eliminating God doesn't change, doesn't eliminate the questions, it just changes them. Where now you have the burden of proof. But I believe that we see God everywhere in human existence. And that when you begin to have eyes to see it, you can't stop seeing it. That's why I believe that God exists. There might be someone here this morning who is ready to respond. We have not talked about how God has revealed himself to us not only through Scripture, but also through the person of His Son, Jesus the Christ, the one He sent to earth to take up our sins and to get rid of those sins by dying for them on the cross. And if you need this morning to come in obedient faith to Him, have those sins washed away, or there's some way we can help you to be right with God, this time is for you. Please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.